You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We're recording this episode on Thursday the 30th of November. And this week we'll have the latest on the Tesla strike. We'll talk about Sweden's Advent celebrations, which kick off this Sunday. We'll discuss why we at The Local want to do more solutions journalism and what that means. We'll chat about why some criminologists think it's time for Sweden to ditch its zero-tolerance approach to drugs. And finally, we'll dig into the aftermath of the far-right Sweden Democrat Congress last weekend and comments made by party leader Jimmy Okason about demolishing mosques. I'm your host, Paul Omani in Stockholm, and I'm joined today from Malmö by our regular panellists, Emma Lovegrain and Richard Orange. How are things in Malmö? Snowy. Yeah, we were out having uh, snowball fights with my kids last night and it was the perfect snow when it came. It was like this ultimate, extremely easy to make snowballs, but still kind of dry. Yeah, it's quite exciting, actually. I drove here from Estelian and the roads were pretty scary. It was snowing a lot out there. And I'm such a southerner because I drive really, really slowly because I'm like, ah, snow! I have driven in, in northern Sweden before and there the roads are like packed eyes from November to March. But people there, they just drive without abandon. Like, like it's a sunny day in June and of course they have good studded tyres, but it was a cultural clash for me when I was up there. Let's start this week with uh, the Tesla strike. And we spoke a few weeks ago about how the conflict between Elon Musk's electric car maker and the EF Metal trade union was shaping up to be a titanic battle. And it's living up to the billing, isn't it, Richard? I mean, can you bring us up to date on what's been happening? So last week, the CECO union, which represents postal workers, launched a strike in sympathy with EF Metal's um, Tesla workers. And that Mm. means because the Swedish transport agency uses Postnord to deliver all its number plates to Tesla's dealerships in Sweden... It basically means the company can't get new number plates, which I think makes it Mm. hard to sell new cars. And this was enough to get Elon Musk, who, even though he's now basically on Twitter, is still CEO at Tesla. He wrote on Twitter on X, this is insane, which is a sentiment calculated to annoy Swedes for whom, you know, a strike aimed at getting a collective bargaining agreement is absolutely standard and not insane at all and entirely how the system works. And Tesla has so far shown no sign of backing down. So it sued Mm. the Swedish Transport Agency, which is an arm of the Swedish state. So all the headlines in the Swedish newspaper is Tesla sues the state, saying that 
the claim that it has to use Postnord to deliver registration plates represents, I quote, like a discriminatory attack without any support in law and demanded that it find an alternative way of getting the plates to Tesla. And then a court in Norshepping gave a provisional ruling which required the transport agency to arrange to uh, allow Tesla to pick up the plates at the manufacturer. But a court in Solna went the other way, giving PostNord until Friday to give a response to a Tesla lawsuit. So I rung up PostNord to ask what this means because I was a bit confused. And he, he said there were two separate lawsuits and they're not related to one another. I'm not entirely sure what the difference between the two lawsuits is. But the bottom line is that Tesla does not have (laughs) the registration plates and still can't get them. And it's only 28 registration plates, apparently. So it's pretty small bananas. But if you look at all of the sympathy strikes and what they mean for Tesla, it's enormously disruptive. So the first is the EF Metal Mechanics. They won't repair the cars or fix number plates to them. So that's like pretty much gums up all Tesla's business in Sweden. Dock workers aren't unloading the cars. Postal workers won't deliver number plates. And then painters won't paint cars. The painters union, the musicians union won't allow certain music to be played in the cars. The cleaners <laughs> won't clean Tesla facilities. El- electricians won't repair Tesla's charging stations, which they have all over Sweden, or do any jobs at the facilities. And the builders won't do any building works. Anyone who Tesla has can have employed in Sweden is liable to be, if they're unionised, to not be able to do what they need. So it is as bad as it can get for Tesla, really, in terms of Mm. union sympathy strikes. And I don't think Tesla can really win over public opinion. You've seen there's been the odd kind of free market-oriented Twitterer person on X or a few articles in the papers arguing that, you know, Sweden has to get real and we can't stop the world's biggest electric car manufacturer doing business in Sweden. But I just think that they're facing such an upwind. They they tend to get absolutely sort of shut down by a much larger number of voices who think that Tesla's in the wrong. It's going to be really interesting. I mean, I think that the most likely thing to happen was that Tesla will find some arrangement where they will get companies that do have collective bargaining groups to do the work for them and then do everything kind of secondhand. Okay, yeah, thanks for that roundup. And we'll keep uh, monitoring developments on this story and we'll link in the show notes to our most pertinent articles. Let's talk about Advent now, which starts on Sunday. And it's fair to say it's a big deal in Sweden. What are the most important things to know about how Sweden celebrates Advent, Emma? So Advent is when the countdown to Christmas begins. Like a lot of Swedish homes will have these four Advent candles that you light one by one every Sunday in the run-up to Christmas, which is um, actually a pretty Christian tradition. But but even non-religious people in very secular Sweden do it. And more than anything, I think what the first of Advent symbolises to most people, even to a lot of religious people, is that it's the date when it becomes socially acceptable to go all in on your Christmas baking and your decorations, your lights and your Christmas music Mm. and so on. And you can really feel Christmas in the air now. Like I walked through Malmö Central Station on the way here and you can smell the saffron because they've just started selling these Lucia saffron buns at Pressbyrån and at the bakeries. And this whole season is just full of mousse. Like, you know, that Swedish word that became an exaggerated Scandi lifestyle concept, but is is actually kind of true this time of the year. Mm-hmm. Like people make plans to, you know, stay at home and bake saffron buns and ginger snaps and, and knäck, which is this Swedish kind of hard toffee that you make around Christmas. Yum. 
Och Swedes will get together with friends and family to spend an afternoon at someone's house for julpissel, which kind of means Christmas handicrafts, which often means like folding little hearts out of paper to hang in the Christmas tree or making your own smell caramel, uh, Christmas crackers. Although they don't actually go crack in Sweden. They're just uh, very basic, actually. They're made out of a toilet roll and some pretty paper. I still have an old toilet roll that, that hangs from a red ribbon, which was one of my first pieces of Jylpissel as a child. And that's all it is. It's a toilet roll hanging from a red ribbon. And it still goes on the Christmas tree every year. <laughs> Lovely. I mean, what could be more Christmassy, really? Thanks for that, Emma. And we have articles on the site about Swedish Advent traditions that we'll link to in the episode notes. Okay, we're going to talk about drugs now and a new report backed by top criminologists, which suggests that Sweden should ditch its zero tolerance approach to drug use. Now, any talk of relaxing drug laws in Sweden has long been taboo. And the Justice Minister Gunnar Strummer was dismissive when I asked him earlier this year in a very noisy part of central Stockholm if it was time for Sweden to re-examine its approach to drugs, as many other countries in Europe are doing, for example, by decriminalising possession of small quantities of cannabis to free up police resources that could be used to combat gangs that are earning billions of kroner from the illegal drug market. Let's hear what he had to say. It's not on the table in Sweden and uh, my view is that the empirical evidence for going uh, in another direction uh, is uh, very uh, questionable. So the Justice Minister says that the empirical evidence for decriminalisation is questionable, but the criminologists behind the report released this week say there is evidence that Sweden needs to change its approach. What does the report say, Richard? Well, what what most amazed me is that drug use was only criminalised in Sweden in 1988, and you Mm. only could get sort of compulsorily tested for drugs in 93. So it's it's a relatively recent, I wouldn't say an experiment, but it, for most of the last century, it wasn't criminalised and drug users were seen as victims. The report is from this independent committee in the Ministry of Finance called Expert Gruppen for Studia e Offentlich Economy. It's a semi-independent committee and they got three Stockholm University criminologists to look at the impact of criminalising drugs in the 80s and early 90s. Mm. And what the criminologists found was that criminalising drugs had done nothing to reduce consumption or made it harder to get hold of drugs, done nothing to push up the price of drugs, and nothing to reduce the deaths from overdose or drug abuse, and also nothing to increase the amount of people getting treatment. Or at least there was no evidence to suggest that it had made any of these things happen. So not a lot of evidence that it's been very effective. And at the same time, they said that criminalising personal use of drugs had come at a big cost in terms, like you say, of of police time, of people being arrested for what the report described as ringer brot, which means kind of very minor crimes. And, you know, people getting criminal record on the back of this which and serving time in prison, which can also have a big impact on people's lives. They don't call for decriminalising drug use, but they call for a government inquiry to be launched into decriminalising the use of narcotics and the yeah. possession of narcotics for personal use. Is the government likely to to launch an inquiry? I mean, given how little political discussion there is about decriminalisation? No, absolutely not. There's absolutely zero chance of that, I would say, <laughs> looking at what um, Gunnar Stromer said. But I do think that it's in the air. 
You know, you yeah. know, in, in Sweden, the way the way public opinion shifts in Sweden is that you know something can be outside the kind of agreed sphere of what can be discussed. And decriminalizing drugs is it's it's something you can talk about at polite dinner parties, and and people won't think you're some kind of extremist. So I think I think mm. when, once that happens, it can shift quite quickly in Sweden. So I think it, it, this government definitely not, but you know, a future social democrat government backed by the centre party quite possibly could shift, I reckon. And then um, they're also going to pretend that they've always been in favour of decriminalising. Exactly, and then it'll be like, yeah, and then it'll be like, as if that was... Traditional social democrat <laughs> politics. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I could see there being a consensus shift in the future, but but not now. The time is not now. And also these three criminologists, it was in uh, on social media, I felt it had been like a government inquiry had, had delivered a, a, a report. But actually, if you look at who these criminologists are, they're people I've interviewed before, and they're very much on the kind of liberal criminologists who think that, you know, you shouldn't have a, a tough on crime approach across the board. So mm. y- you kind of would expect them to to come up with the conclusions they have come up with. OK, thanks, Richard. And if anyone's interested in learning more about Sweden's zero tolerance drug policy, I'd recommend going back and listening to our interview with the journalist Johan Wiklien, who has written a book on the subject. And we'll put a link in the notes so you can find it quickly. Now, Emma, let's talk about solutions journalism. I saw that you recently designed a course for fellow journalists on how to introduce solutions journalism into the newsroom. And I know it's something you're passionate about. So can you just explain what the term means and why you think it's important? Yeah, so I designed this course for The Fix Media, which is this industry publication for media professionals, basically. I would say think of solutions journalism a bit as as like a cousin of investigative journalism. So investigative journalism, what it does is it it sort of uncovers a problem, quite rightly. And what solutions journalism does is it adds another kind of layer to this because it shifts the focus from the problem to how people respond to a problem. And it does that in a very kind of clear and critical way, like what evidence shows that they were successful? Is there anything we can learn from this? Mm. And this is one way that journalists can give audiences a better, a more nuanced picture of what's what's happening in the world. Because although there are plenty of problems in the world, there are also plenty of people trying to fix those problems. And if we don't report on that, we're not telling the whole story. And there is growing evidence also that readers want coverage of solutions as well as problems. Like they don't just want to hear that the world is going to pieces. They want to know how to how to piece it back together. Right. And how do you apply this concept to your work here as editor of The Local Sweden? Okay, so I'm, I'm maybe nerding out a little bit too much here, but solutions journalism, it has quite a clear definition. So it's supposed to include a response to a problem, evidence that it's working, any limitations to the response and insights that we can learn from. And for a journalist, that can all feel quite overwhelming because it's mm. a it's quite complex and B, it doesn't follow the usual template of what you're used to doing, which is reporting on problems. So the first hurdle that reporters usually have to overcome is like realizing that it can be done despite all the pressures of the daily news cycle and breaking news and, and podcast recordings and so on. But I would say that the main difference that it's made to my work isn't so much the big in-depth pieces, but but kind of how a solutions mindset influences our our day-to-day reporting. So even when we 
cover problems on the local, we always at least try to include context that explains why is it like this. Sweden is in quite a polarized place at the moment, like especially when it comes to issues like crime and migration. And we try not to be part of the world that increases those divisions. And I think for us at the local, it's probably especially important when it comes to migration, because I feel like a lot of media tend to report on migration, either it's something that's really, really bad, or it's mm. something that's you know totally amazing, when a lot of the time it just is. It's a fact of life. And as our readers definitely know, it can be good, bad, or anything in between, and sometimes all of it at once. And that's not necessarily solutions journalism, but I hope that, that the mindset of telling that whole story, including solutions, including problems, makes us better at explaining what's actually happening in Sweden. Do you have any examples of good solutions journalism that we've done here at The Local? Uh, well, we've been doing solutions journalism probably since around 2017 when we when we launched membership of The Local. But perhaps most recently during the, the, during the COVID pandemic, we, we received a grant from the Solutions Journalism Network and our reporters produced a series of really excellent solutions articles from across Europe. And that was mm. probably the last sort of big project we did. And I'll just give you one example. Like in Sweden, my, my colleague at the time, Catherine Edwards, she did an amazing article on what other countries could learn from Sweden's relatively light touch approach when they came out of their COVID lockdowns. Yeah. And it might sound controversial to have a solutions focus on that, because I know that we will have a lot of listeners who will argue that they didn't solve much at all and there's very little people can learn from Sweden, is what some people will say. But solutions journalism isn't just like, we did this thing and wasn't it great? It's looking at what people can learn from a response, good or bad. Like For example, a lot of people in the US at the time, they, they used the Sweden case to argue against forced lockdowns. Because they were like, oh, well, Sweden stays in Sweden, they stay home from work when they're sick. But if you don't then also understand that Sweden has generous sick pay rules, which allow people to voluntarily stay home from work, you don't understand the full picture. Right. And if you don't understand the, the limitation to the Swedish response, for example, that some people in low pay professions had to go to work every day anyway, you don't understand the full pictures. And I think readers want to understand what we can kind of learn from the world around us. Yeah, really interesting, Emma. And we'll um, link to, to that article and um, some others in the notes. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Let's move on now to the biggest talking point in Swedish politics this week, namely a speech by the far-right Sweden Democrat leader Jimmy Okeson, in which he expressed a desire to tear down some of Sweden's mosques, as well as launching a verbal attack on Sweden's biggest party, the left-wing Social Democrats, accusing them of supporting Islamist extremists. Let's uh, break this down a bit, Richard. What were the key messages in this speech? Well, I think it's a textbook example of radical right rhetoric. It's based around narratives about an internal enemy, traitors, betrayal. So he starts off identifying an internal enemy who he calls, who he says are the Islamists. But what the way the speech works is it's never quite clear if he's referring to kind of, you know, militant Islamists and jihadists or all just kind of Muslims. I don't know. And he says, the Islamists are no longer a handful of crazies spread out in a few deprived areas around our big cities. They are here in big numbers. They are everywhere, which really struck mm. me because I just thought, wow, when I when I read that and, and, and heard it. And because is he talking about Islamists? Because according to SEPO, Sweden's security service, there, there are only about 2,000 militant Islamists in Sweden. So... Are they everywhere? I don't think so. I mean, maybe he was referring to the protests against Israel's attacks on Gaza. Maybe he was saying these people are all Islamists who you've seen on our streets over the last few weeks. But anyway, right. um, it, it's very unclear who he's talking about, whether he's talking about extremists or just Muslims in general. And then he claimed that Islamists in Sweden had, I quote, like strong mutual loyalty with the Social Democrat Party and the left yeah. in general. And he, he said that they are openly supported by representatives of the Social Democrats. And he even said the Social Democrats are, a quote, an active part of the Islamist movement. So you create the internal enemy, then you say that the mainstream in Sweden are in league with this internal enemy, which is, you know, it's a classic radical right narrative. And then I think he comes quite close to a version of this great replacement theory, which is the idea that left-wing elites have imported immigrants to uh, European countries in order to get their votes and stay in power as a kind of power mm. strategy. Because he goes, is this because the Social Democrats are easily deceived or naive because they sympathise with the Islamists? Then he goes, I mm. don't know. It's up to each of us to come to their own judgment, which is this kind of, you know what the truth really is. And then and then he, he says, but I do know is that Magdalena Anderson is never going to get to be prime minister again without Islamist votes and support. And again, is he talking about Islamists here? Because are 2,000 Islamic militants really going to swing an election? So if he identified Islamists as an internal enemy, what did he say he was going to do about it? Well, that, that's the bit that made the headlines. He called for a moratorium on the building of any new mosques in Sweden. And then he called for mosques where anti-democratic, anti-Swedish, homophobic or anti-Semitic propaganda is preached to be demolished. And for any kind of minarets, domes or crescents to be removed from public buildings in Sweden. So, I mean, that's the bit that caused, I think, I don't know how many articles, I think something like 30,000 articles have been written about it, a lot of them in Turkey. And a lot of that is the demolishing mosques is the kind of what what, what caused international outrage. And the other thing he, he said, which I think is a bit chilling, he gives a kind of warning to the social democrats and the, perhaps the moderates as well. He says, Magdalene Anderson has to choose. Does she stand with the Islamists or does she stand with the Swedish people? So he's putting pressure on the, the Social Democrats. And then he also says the Sweden Democrats 
want some kind of vengeance. He says, it's time to hold people responsible. And then he says, we do not intend to forget. We do not intend to forgive. So, like I said, it's a textbook radical right speech. You know, the main party power is secretly in league with an internal enemy, and we will root out the internal enemy and take vengeance on the traitors. That's the basic narrative. And I've never heard Orkerson go this far, although I'm told that in the, you know, this this was the kind of thing that was in the Sweden Democrat manifesto and in some of their speeches in the 90s before they sort of made themselves rumsreant, which means kind of, you know, fit for polite company. So I think I think this is, it is kind of going back to how they were at about the time that Jimmy Yorkson took over the party in, in 2005. Why do you think he used this kind of extreme rhetoric now? Well, I think there's three main explanations for what he's doing, which could all be a bit true. One is that this is what he really thinks. And him and the Sweden Democrats have been kind of hiding their true beliefs over the last decade or so to get power. Number two is that it's it's a way of dominating the headlines. Like, does anyone yeah. know what happened at the Liberal Party Congress? Happened the same day? No, <laughs> nobody has a clue. <laughs> Was there a Liberal Liberals, Party Congress? Who are they? <laughs> so, uh, and, and I remember, you know, I covered the Danish People's Party in Denmark a lot, and they are masters of this. So they'll come up with something about, you know, forcing school children to eat pork or something and they'll come out with that and it normally happens in the middle of a parliamentary term so they'll come out something really extreme they'll get in the headlines and it's a way of telling the sort of more extreme elements of their own support base you know we know we we've got your back we represent you and then as you come into the election year they tone it down and become more normal to try and win over less extreme voters it might be a bit of that i mean this was the party congress this is this is this is the moment when they're trying to rev up their supporters, their key supporters. The third possibility is that it's kind of strategic. So in the Politiken podcast from Svenska Dagbladet, Eric Nielsen, their reporter, argued that what he's trying to do is put the Social Democrats in a difficult position because they lost some votes to this new startup Muslim party, Nuance, in the last election. Mm. And his argument is that he's trying to force the Social Democrats to say, to take a stand against like Islamism and then hopefully either losing those votes, Muslim votes, or, on the other hand, make it harder for them to win back uh, Social Democrats who now vote for the Sweden Democrats by being tougher on migration. So he he argues that he's trying to put the Social Democrats in a difficult position, and that's why the speech was so much about the Social Democrats and their uh, attitude to Islamism. Interesting. I'd probably lean more towards the, the, the first two of those because... You could also argue that it would damage the right-wing bloc because you're scaring away a lot of, you know, what they call sort of Stockholm moderates by coming out with this kind of rhetoric. But it's not bad for the Sweden Democrats to steal votes from the moderates either. It is if it means that the right-wing can't win the next election. Mm -hmm. It is quite an extraordinary speech. I mean, they were talking that it might be a game-changer in Swedish politics. I mean, because it does make it harder for the government to carry on doing what it's doing. But I mean, I think I think they will carry on doing what they're doing. I don't think they have any option, really. It reminded me a bit of the opinion piece uh, Jimmy Okerson wrote in 2009, which was a year before they got into parliament for the first time, where he wrote in Aftonbladet that, that Islam is the biggest foreign threat to Sweden since the Second World War. And that's the kind of rhetoric he's returning to now, whatever, like 14 years later. And this speech 
also made me think of a guest we had on the podcast a few months ago, um, Jonathan Lehman from the Anti-Racist Expo Foundation, who spoke about how and why the Sweden Democrats have become more radical since the traditional right-wing parties welcomed them in from the cold. And we can link to that episode in the notes. But even for the governing moderates who have been very slow to criticise a party whose support they need, this speech did seem to cross a line, didn't it? Can you tell us, Richard, about some of the reactions to the speech, starting with the Prime Minister of Christensen? Well, yeah, Christensen, he said the speech was, um, he, he came out with at least two different statements on the speech. So he said it was polarising and lacking any respect in any respect. So he said it was respectless, was the word. And then he fell back on the Swedish passive-aggressive we. He goes, in Sweden, we do not demolish places of religious worship, uh, which is a way of of you know, criticising him without pointing the finger at the Sweden Democrats. And <laughs> then the government leaked in expressing yesterday that Christendom had had what they described as an upleksander samtal, which samtal is a terrible pronunciation, but it means a sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, like an educational conversation. A good old telling off. <laughs> a good old telling off. And then, and this says something about the power dynamics between the parties, the Sweden Democrats came back denying this and saying that neither Jimmy Yorkson nor the Sweden Democrats would ever accept any anything Alexander. So so they they said no, you know, we're not going to put up with that. No, no, there's there's no way you can give us a telling off. They instantly hit back and said no, no, Ulf, who who do you think you are? I think you're getting above your station here. And Johan Persson, leader of Liberals called it downright unswedish, and Ebba Bush took a very long time to react. Uh, she was silent until Tuesday when she wrote a post on Facebook which took a long time to get to it, but it did say, in our country, we do not demolish places of worship. But then she added, but we also do not allow extremism to hide behind the right to religious free expression. And we don't leave fluff in the dryer. We don't. <laughs> I just I just reread your article this week, uh, Richard, about Swedish sort of passive aggressive uh, language and the laundry room etiquette that Emma's referring to there. And we'll definitely post a link in the notes because it is hilarious. <laughs> Uh, and the, the Centre Party leader, Muharrem Demirok, said the Sweden Democrats represented a security threat to Sweden and that they were sabotaging Sweden's NATO bid. And that led to a war of words between the two party leaders. Can you tell us, Emma, about how that row unfolded? So Demirok argued that Sweden's already very difficult process to join NATO could become even more difficult because... Um, Turkey is not expected to like Orkesson's talk about tearing down mosques. Like they've previously blocked Sweden's NATO application because of comments from much less high profile people than that. Orkesson, on the other hand, didn't like Demarok's ac- accusation that he is sabotaging Sweden's NATO bid by making a speech that may sabotage Sweden's NATO bid. So Orkesson accused Demarok of thinking that the Turkish regime should be allowed to dictate Sweden's domestic politics. But right. um, but the most controversial bit was perhaps that he, he invoked the fact that Demirok until recently held dual Turkish-Swedish citizenship and implied that he was the bigger security threat, perhaps for that reason. And at the time of recording, this row is kind of still unfolding. Like Demirok has hit back again, saying to Orkeson that, who are you to question my Swedishness? And I think the last bit touches on something interesting because... I find it a bit sad that a lot of the reactions against Dawkinson's speech have, I feel, like they've focused on how how it might affect Sweden abroad rather than how it might affect Muslims in Sweden. 
Mm. And um, there was even a group of Muslim organizations in in Gothenburg or in Western Sweden, at least, that um, that wrote an open letter to Ulf Kristersson about it, saying basically we don't feel safe here. And um, it was nice to see actually that uh, Kristersson actually did respond to that this week yeah. and basically said that Swedish Muslims should feel safe and respected in their own country. Obviously, yeah. Kristersson's government he often gets criticized for for not speaking out enough when the Sweden Democrats say something extreme. But I feel like on this occasion, there has actually been unusually strong reactions coming even from the right-wing parties in government, as, mm. as Richard talked about. And it makes you wonder a bit at which point does Orkesson's approach actually get too much for the government or even too much for the voters in general? Yeah, what do you think? <sighs> I don't know. I think they'll ride it all the way. I yeah. think, uh, I think I, they'll I, stay I, with it all I, the way I, to I the think, next election, I think you're whatever right. happens. I think you're right that they don't have much of a choice. No. Because if, if they reject the Sweden Democrats, then, you know, they don't have anyone else to support them. No. Yeah, I mean, the, the alternative is to become a kind of, is to, is to somehow do some sort of deal with the Social Democrats, which they're just not going to do uh, yeah. at this point. I, I can't see it happening. Or, mm. I don't know, if they end up having a complete falling out with the Sweden Democrats, the Sweden Democrats maybe vote against their budget next year and maybe the government falls. Mm-hmm. And then you could have a realignment if yeah. the government falls. Okay, we shall see. Well, that's all we have time for this week. If you like the podcast, please pass it on to someone else you think might enjoy it. Our panellists today were Emma Lovegreen and Richard Orange. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul Amani, and we'll be back again next week with a brand new episode. Until then, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.